Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Tuesday, February 13th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Companies in Hong Kong are feeling the pinch from Beijing's crackdown, and equity hedge funds are losing their shine. Plus, China is kind of known as a black box when it comes to understanding the country's economy. One company could change all that. This is kind of a treasure trove of information about how ordinary Chinese consumers are spending their money. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Beijing has been cracking down on Hong Kong a lot lately, and global firms are worried about what this crackdown means for their businesses. Take, for example, Latham & Watkins. It's the world's second highest grossing law firm, and it told its lawyers in Hong Kong they can no longer automatically access its international database. They're going to have to ask for special permission first. Now, this type of behavior is part of a larger pattern of how companies are doing business in Hong Kong these days, which is a real problem for the city, especially since it's made a name for itself as an international finance hub. The best stock pickers from equity hedge funds used to be treated like financial royalty, For years, the managers using the so-called long-short strategy made big bucks in U.S. markets. But lately, the strategy hasn't really been working out, and investors are losing patience. Costas Morcellus covers hedge funds for the FT, and he joins me now to discuss. So, Costas, before we get into what's really afflicting equity hedge funds, maybe just do me a favor and start with the strategy behind them. So... With a traditional equity manager, you would just buy stocks that you like, and those stocks should do better than the overall market, and that's how they're adding value. With equity long-short hedge funds, they add an additional component. Not only do they buy stocks that they uh, really like, they also sell short, which means bet against stocks that they think um, shouldn't be doing so well. Now, this strategy has the potential to protect investors because during good times when the market is going up, in theory, your stock picks should do particularly well. But at the same time, if you've picked correctly, the stocks that you're betting against should go down in value. Now, when you have a bear market and overall stocks are going down, the higher quality stocks that you've bought should go down less than the overall market. Meanwhile, the stocks that you are betting against should go down even more than other stocks because they're low quality. And so that is how you make money during any type of market conditions or at least reduce your losses during difficult market conditions. Uh, Got it. Okay, so these hedge funds basically help you bet on strong stocks and bet against weak stocks. Costas, when was the, I guess you could call it, heyday for equity hedge funds? So this strategy had its heyday back in the 90s and the early 2000s. In the 90s, it had some pretty incredible returns with many managers returning double-digit returns pretty consistently. And it sort of culminated around 2000 where you had the dot-com bubble which burst or was starting to burst. And a lot of these managers made quite a bit of money shorting a lot of these overvalued dot-com internet companies. There was also a pretty good period of performance um, in the 2000s leading into the 
financial crisis, some funds betting against some big losers. But after the crisis, um, things took a turn for the worse. Yeah, what happened then? Generally speaking, the strategy started to sour after the 2008 financial crisis when central banks started intervening in markets. So what happens is that investors tend to keep buying riskier assets like equities because they think that the central banks will step in to support the market. So people keep buying and buying and buying. And this is bad for their strategies because, you know, a big part of their strategy is the fact that they're selling short. They're, they're betting against shares. But many of these shares keep going up as well. And so that means that they're actually taking losses on their short sales uh, while, sure, making money on their longs. But that means that performance is not brilliant. So over the past five years, we've seen uh, almost 150 billion worth of outflows for these specific type of funds. Um, and that completely wipes out the sort of investment returns that they've gained. So they've actually contracted in size, which you cannot say about the rest of the hedge fund industry, which generally has been growing. Mm. So with all these major losses and outflows, what are the long-term prospects for these hedge funds? Well, if markets uh, are going up year after year after year, it does make the case for allocating to hedge funds more challenging because hedge funds charge quite high fees relative to what you get in a passive index track. But if we have, for instance, a global recession or inflation comes back, the stock market is impacted, that could make the case for hedge funds once again, because then investors might start to retreat from equities. So I'd be hesitant to call peak long-short equity hedge fund right now. But one thing's for sure, if the bull market keeps going up and up and up, it just it's just going to get harder and harder for a lot of these hedge funds. That was the FT's hedge fund correspondent, Costas Morcellus. Bitcoin had a big day yesterday. The cryptocurrency's price hit $50,000 for the first time since 2021. And it's got exchange-traded funds to thank for all this enthusiasm. Some of Wall Street's biggest names launched spot Bitcoin ETFs earlier this year after U.S. regulators gave them the green light. Analysts said the surge of new money through these ETFs could mean that Bitcoin is turning the corner for the long run now. A high-profile financier in China has started a company that, on its face, seems pretty straightforward. It's a small business lender, and it's called MicroConnect. But it turns out MicroConnect is actually filling a pretty big gap in China's economy, a lack of real-time consumer spending data. Here to talk to me about it is the FT's Kay Wiggins. Hey, Kay. Hi, Mark. So can you give me a bit of background about MicroConnect? I mean, who's in charge there and how was it originally set up? So the main character is a guy called Charles Lee, and he was the head of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange for about a decade until 2020. And uh, this is his big new project. So basically, I mean, at a very simple level, he's providing finance to thousands of small shops in China. This is like, you know, noodle shops, car washes, karaoke bars, um, mostly sort of small companies that have maybe a small chain of a handful of coffee shops or hair salons, whatever, and they want to expand to a slightly bigger chain. And the sort of 
unique thing about the model is that because China is kind of almost entirely cashless now, he can use software to take a percentage of a shop's revenue automatically, like in effect out of a store's till every day. So he will invest some money in a small shop and then every day a percentage of the money that they make will automatically be repaid. Hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that model. Like, what's it all about? Crucially, is getting data, right? So these shops make an agreement with MicroConnect where they say they're going to hand over a certain percentage of their revenue, which means that the company can see exactly how well all these shops are doing. And it's doing this at like more than 10,000 shops across China. And it's making that data public at a time when lots of economists say that China is increasingly a black box in terms of kind of understanding what's really going on in China's economy and getting hold of reliable economic data. This is kind of a treasure trove of information about how ordinary Chinese consumers are spending their money. Treasure trove. I love that. Because yeah, I mean, it's incredibly valuable to have. But how does MicroConnect plan on using all that information that they've gathered What they are doing with the data is using it to enable them to do the next stage of their business plan, which is to package up all of the revenue streams from all of the repayments from all these small businesses and turn them into securities that can be traded between investors such as hedge funds and asset managers. So kind of the way to think about that, I think, is kind of how mortgages were bundled up and sold on as securities before the 2008 crisis. You'd have like a whole bundle of mortgages, some good, some bad. They'd all be bundled together and and then there'd be securities that would be issued based on that sort of package. The model here is quite similar. Uh, Okay, so I think I get it. Instead of repayments coming from mortgages, they're coming from the small businesses that you mentioned, noodle shops and small stores. So how have investors reacted to this package, Kay? There are a couple of schools of thought here. You know, economists will say that they like love that this data is available, right? Because it's really hard to know what's going on in China a lot of the time. But on the flip side, there are people who say they're concerned about that what might happen here is that kind of a lot of people will start buying or investing in these bundles of securities without really understanding the risks they're taking. Okay, so Kay, you said earlier that Chinese data is kind of like a black box, which isn't really that surprising, right? Like, we hear all the time about how opaque the country is. How does Beijing feel about MicroConnect? So at the moment, this sits in a kind of a gray area when it comes to regulation. It's unclear how regulators will end up treating this very new product, but certainly there are risks Right, like the most obvious one perhaps being that if Beijing decides that it doesn't like this data being out there about China's economy, particularly if that data isn't telling a very positive story, then that could cause real problems for the company. Kay Wiggins is the FT's Asia financial correspondent. Thanks, Kay. Thanks, Mark. You can read more on all these stories at ft.com for free when you click the links in our show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. 
so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustolium. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.